Welcome to the Functional Nutrition Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Holt. I'm a functional medicine nutritionist with a feisty attitude in over a decade of clinical experience. I work with women all over the world through my online programs, and I'm also the founder of the Functional Nutrition Academy, a 12-month practitioner mentorship where I help other nutrition pros level up with functional medicine methodologies. I've got a bone to pick with diet culture and the conventional healthcare model that are both systematically failing so many of us. Creating a new model is my life's work, and this is what the show's all about. Please keep in mind this podcast is created for educational purposes only and should never be used as a replacement for medical diagnosis or treatment. If you like what you hear today, I'd love for you to subscribe, leave a review in iTunes, share with a friend, and keep coming back for more. Thanks for joining me. Now let's dive deep. Hello, friends. I'm here today without Kyle, but the good news is that I am with someone who I'm very, very excited to bring to the show. Um, when I first started the podcast and made a list of all my dream interviewees, she was one of the ones at the top of the list. Uh, she's kind of like a celebrity in my eyes because I've been closely following her for about three years now. Um, she's brought a lot of research to the table in the real food community when it comes to baby feeding. And so she's personally my my go-to on everything baby feeding. And I am talking about Megan Garcia. So Megan is a mama to two boys and lives in Los Angeles. She has a master's degree in traditional oriental medicine and is the creator of First Foods and Beyond. Her main gig for the last 10 years has been copywriting, editing, and editing. (laughs) That's a word I can't say editing and research for folks in the health and wellness industry. When Megan found out she was pregnant with her first baby back in 2011, she began going deep into baby health and wellness, specifically a baby's first 1,000 days. Her interest in baby health, combined with a big love for all things food and gut-related, has become the heart and soul of what she does in her own little corner of the web at MeganGarcia.com. So Megan, welcome to the show and thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited and that was an amazing intro. It was really good, wasn't it? Yeah, it it was really sweet. (laughs) Um, All right, so we have quite a few questions to pick through today. Clearly, this is a hot topic. It kind of feels like there's a lot of uncertainty and a lot of question marks around introducing solids to to babies. Um, So even though I secretly want to pick your brain about every little thing, I do realize that this is a show for other people and not just like a slumber party. So (laughs) I will try to stick to Q&A format as much as possible so we can really get all of those listener questions answered. And I I said this um, before we started recording, but I don't want to ask you too much about first food specifics because you've already created such an abundance of easily digestible information and it's all packaged up in a very affordable way in your first foods and beyond program. So for folks that are listening that don't know about it, um, that program walks mamas and parents through the introduction of solids for baby six to 12 months. Um, Megan also covers signs of readiness, feeding schedule, food tutorials, and the baby food pyramid, which I've personally never seen anywhere else. Um, Folks get access to 10 printable guides, a video slideshow, 14 audio lessons, and a forum. And all of that is for 
$67. So I strongly encourage new parents, parents-to-be, or even grandparents who are listening to go buy that. You can even grab a gift certificate on our website for a friend or a family member. And I truthfully cannot think of a better better baby shower gift. I would have been all over that. So um, with all that said, in your bio, you mentioned, Megan, um, baby's first 1,000 days. So first of all, how long is that? <laughs> and then can you tell us a little bit more about what that, that first 1,000 days entails? Yeah, so the first 1,000 days are nine months of pregnancy and two years postpartum. Um, so, a court, so back when I was looking into baby nutrition, my son was probably, my first son was probably maybe around two years old. And um, I was just trying to find out some basic information and all of the health websites that I went to in terms of like the official recommendations for protein or fat or certain nutrients, it all started at two years. And so I was like, that's really weird. Like why does, what about the first, you know, 18 months? Um, and so I started digging into the research and I found um, there's this term used, I think it was first used by Hillary Clinton, like back in the day when she was um, first lady. But the first 1000 days are, um, you know, that nine months of pregnancy, two years postpartum for a baby have the most impact supposedly on a baby's development. And so there's been over the years, like since I guess like 2000, I don't know, like mid 2000 decade, that, that, that decade, the first, you know, 2000 to 2010 yeah. onward, there's been a lot of research into, uh, the nutrition that's needed, um, the microbiome or the microbes that baby has in his gut or on his skin or whatever that affects like overall health, which can mean, um, you know, colic or reflux or eczema, that type of thing and allergies and so like they're really starting to look at a constellation of factors that go into a baby's health and that includes also nutrition of course so um there's certain um nutrients that are really important you know say the first trimester you're going to have like a certain amount or a certain spectrum of nutrients that you really need to get and then in the last trimester there's a different set um so in the last trimester would be more like um long chain omega-3s like DHA or EPA, those are really important. You hear that a lot. And like, if you ever look up nutrition for pregnancy, um, you might hear that mentioned is because it's so important. And so then after baby starts solids, you also want to focus on a certain set of nutrients. And that's really where my interest went. And that's where my work kind of leaned towards. And while I like talking about like a bunch of other things related to baby, um, I really like get geeky when it comes to gut health and nutrition for baby after um, he begins or she begins to eat. So um, yeah, that's the first 1000 days. And, and what's um, really exciting is that I think in 2020 or 2018, there's, there will be um, a new set of guidelines that the, um, that are put out in the United States and it's called the B20, uh, the B24 project. And so it's basically like nutrition and health for babies from birth to 24 months. 
And so they are update. I think like the government, you know, officials or whatever, they're, they're updating their recommendations. So it's not so outdated. There's a bit of like lag when you look at information, say, um, that you would find on a health website where it's like a really crunchy person and they're into certain diets and they are all about gut health. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of information out there and it's really smart and it's actually more cutting edge in some ways than what you would find, um, suggested by doctors. And then sure, like, um, citizen scientists, if you will. Exactly. Yeah. And then kind of in the background, there's all this research. And so I find that like, a lot of times when I talk to moms, um, doctors, like not all doctors, but some, like they just don't stay up to date with research. And so that, I mean, that's their job. You know, they need to like read this stuff. And if they don't read it, then they don't know it. And if they don't know it, then they can't. And this stuff is always changing. I mean, one of the questions that we have is about um, allergies, you know, and that's a dramatic change that we just saw in the last several years about the mm -hmm. allergy, allergens, like recommendations. So yeah, it's important to stay up to date with this stuff. And and I think, um, you know, there will be some big updates coming soon and then it will be more common knowledge. So. Well, that's good news and yeah. something to look forward to. Yeah. I think something that most, most people don't understand is that it can often take um, anywhere from like 14 up to 30 years but before medical literature kind of trickles down into like a conventional doctor's office. Um, and I think, you know, doctors are just so burnt out with all of their responsibilities right now that um, they don't necessarily have the time to stay up to date, like you're saying. So yeah. that's exciting that this is being addressed. And my first thought with the the first 1000 days was was obviously with the um, the gut microbiome, because mm -hmm. it really does start, you know, in utero and um, baby's initial inoculate inoculation, correct me if I'm wrong, um, begins when when we're born and we come through the birth canal. Um, which would fall into that 1,000 days. Obviously. Yeah, they're finding, I mean, I think like in 2014, they found there was this paper that came out. It was really exciting because they found microbes in the placenta. So there's like some suggestion that a baby's exposed to microbes before birth, but the first major inoculation is um, during birth. And that's why there's so much attention put to C-sections and kind of like updating how we do them because they're so common and they're becoming more common. And sometimes they can, they've been linked to some, some other issues in life. So, um, yeah, but those microbes are really important. And also, um, I, from what I've read, um, a baby's microbes, they become adult-like, like quote unquote adult-like, um, at three years. So that yeah, falls I've within. read the same thing too. Yeah. So that would fall within the, within the 1000 days. Yeah. Yeah. So that's like your window. Like okay. it's like you have this window to really make a huge impact on your baby's life. And I don't, I hate to put so much pressure like on moms because I feel like, you know, we're so like, or at least me, like, and I think like a lot of moms I talk to, we're so susceptible to mom guilt and freaking yes. out about, is this right? Is this okay? And not feeling like, I know with my first baby, I kind of I wasn't able to provide what I know now to him. And I also had postpartum depression. And so there's a lot of things going on that um, I wish I knew then. But, you know, you just kind of have to, like, if you've already been through it and, and you've done some things like that are not the best for, you know, baby's health, like you just have to keep going and do your best from here on out and not blame yourself or, you know, look back and 
feel anything negative about what you've done. Just love, love, love. <laughs> I think that's a really important, <laughs> important thing because you know, at the, at the end of the day, all of this stuff truly, truly matters. It matters a lot, but so does, so does love not to sound really cheesy, but you know, I just read a book on, um, Donna by Donna uh, Jackson Nakazawa called childhood disrupted. And it's about how adverse, adverse childhood experiences can really set the stage for chronic disease. Oh, this yeah. book specifically looked at autoimmune disease. So it's like, yes, um, the microbiome matters. Yes, diet nutrition matters. Yes, breastfeeding matters. Yes, how you're born matters. But so does how you're nurtured too. So we can't, we can't turn away from that. I think it all matters. Um, and so giving ourselves a little bit of grace is, is hugely important. Um, mm. You did mention, you touched upon a couple of things um, that I want to bring up. The first one is I, I recently read, I think this summer, I read a book called The Mind-Gut Connection um, by uh, a doctor named uh, Emeryn Mayer. And he talked about, and this kind of goes to um, what you were saying about how how uh, babies, I think you said there's bacteria, they found bacteria in the placenta. Is that what mm -hmm. you said? Yeah. Um, if mom is under stress during pregnancy, that's obviously going to impact her, her own gut microbiota. Uh, but in turn, that can then influence baby's microbiota, which is pretty wild because that's happening in utero. And, and it kind of has a biological reason because if mom mom's body experiences stress, then she wants to prime her baby for a stressful environment and a stressful world, which is just like so crazy and so fascinating. Mm -hmm. And again, not to lump more pressure onto moms, like make sure you're not stressed out during <laughs> pregnancy. But I mean, I don't know, kind, kind of coming back to that grace piece, like sprinkle a little bit of grace throughout your pregnancy too. like be easy on yourself. Um, the other thing you said was about uh, C-section. So you brought that up. And I'm curious to hear, I've I've heard, I think it's called seeding, but correct me mm -hmm. if I'm wrong. Um, you know, for, for moms that do have C-sections, if whether they choose it or, or not by choice, is there something? So obviously baby misses that initial inoculation because they're not being birthed through the birth canal, through the vagina. Is there something that can be done for, for babies that are born via cesarean? Yeah, um, so there's this really interesting paper that um, put out by Marie Dominguez Bello, I think is her name. Um, and she's somebody that puts out a lot of research around babies' microbes. And I think the pap paper's title was like, um, Mom's Microbes Matter, or something along those lines. And she um, is a, uh, a doctor at, at, at NYU, um, or she's, she's in the medical field at NYU. Anyway, she um, talked a little bit about this, and she's interested in this topic. Um, it's called vaginal seeding, and um, this is something where you can swab the inside of the vaginal canal and inoculate baby's mucous membranes, so that would be like the nose, the eyes, the mouth, with these microbes, and then that helps actually, the, and there was another place that I um, saw this where it actually replicates almost exactly the microbes that the baby would get if the baby was born vaginally. So that's amazing, right? Unreal. I mean, that is yeah, so cool. Because one of the biggest issues with C-section is that the baby gets inoculated first by microbes from the environment, which are, it's mainly a bacteria called Staphylococcus, I think is how you say it. Yeah. Um, so, um, 
I do a lot of reading, but not a lot of speaking. <laughs> it's like, welcome to podcast. My, my world is so like internal. Um, so yeah, so, so basically vaginal seeding is a way to replicate the natural birth experience, which is really huge. However, the problems with it that I've seen uh, people bring up is that if a mother has an infection, you're then spreading the infection to the baby. So one way around this, I was thinking, and I haven't seen anything on this, is that you know you would just get tested for these infections before um, before it's your due date or before you just. Um, I guess if you schedule a C-section, then then you know for sure you're going to have one. But sometimes it's a surprise, so maybe like routinely um, that could be a part of what we do um it's just it's not very conventional it's not done really and i think if you were to ask your doctor about it they would might look at you a little blank and just kind of okay. be like yeah right um but it's something that you could push for it is in the research um the other thing that is mentioned um and i forget where but um you can actually um i think you can ask for antibiotics before or after the umbilical cord has been clamped. So that way it kind of minimizes your baby's exposure to antibiotics um, because antibiotics have the additional problem of they kill certain bacteria or all bacteria. Um, and um, not all, but you know, they, they kind of just are like, they just hit everything and they don't discriminate between the bad and the good. Whereas um, herbs or something like that would only target bad microbes but um so that's something else to consider um maybe if you have a doctor that's open to those kinds of things but it's just about finding somebody that you can work with and and at the end of the day um you know there's plenty of moms that i know that have had c-sections and it's fine and it's not the end of the world if you do have one and you don't get any of those things done but if you can do some vaginal seeding or something along those lines then it can really um, help to protect your baby's gut health and immune health in the future. That is, um, that's so cool. And I like what she said, whoever wrote that, the article, the woman you just referenced. Um, yeah. I'm sorry, go ahead. It's uh, Marie Dominguez Bello, I believe. <laughs> sorry to make you say that. <laughs> <laughs> um, moms, microbes matter. matter. Yeah. Wow, because um, we're not so used to hearing anything about mom mattering, quite frankly. It's like, <laughs> as long as the baby's healthy, it doesn't matter. It's like, well, what about mom? So I just really like the title of that. Yeah. Um, all right. So we haven't even gotten to listener questions yet. So let me let me read the first one. And this okay. is the one that you were alluding to earlier. Um, when my son was starting solids only a year and a half ago, they told us not to try any allergens like nuts, egg yolks, or cow's milk until after a year. I know that's still the recommendation for cow's milk, but now I'm hearing you should introduce nuts at six months. It's totally making me nervous. Six months is approaching with my daughter and I don't want to do it. Why has it changed in the last year and a half? Why would introducing it sooner benefit? And what does that mean? Oh, and does that mean you should introduce eggs and other high allergy foods sooner too? Okay, so the issue around cow's milk is that it can block the absorption of iron. So um, that's usually why people, or why it's recommended to wait on cow's milk because 
um, you want your baby to get a lot of iron and zinc and certain things, especially iron. Like there's a lot of attention put on iron. So that's the cow's milk issue. In terms of allergens, um, there's really strong research that suggests that peanuts um, specifically, if you introduce them sooner as opposed to later, um, it can help to it can help to protect against peanut allergy. So what does this mean for other allergens? Um, we don't have like the science or the research to say like, you know, yes, that's the, like, this is also true for cow's milk, for eggs, um, for all these other allergens, for nuts, um, for fish, whatever. So basically what that paper means is that chances are, and this kind of changed the recommendations, chances are it's probably a good idea to expose your baby to um, these proteins that are in certain foods so that the immune system can understand them. So um, in terms of a fear around introducing them, you know, it's, it's actually probably protective um, and that probably is really strong, so strong that they changed the current like recommendations or the past recommendations, which was to wait um, until after a certain point. Um, and usually if a baby does have a response, um, it's not going to be a life-threatening response. Like the cases that it's life-threatening are very, 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 very rare. And um, that it can even happen actually in um, newborns who have, who are um, susceptible to a certain protein or it's just it's not common but if it does happen it can happen at any age really in that babyhood time um, so that's something to think about so it's really usually not an issue um, and then um, let's see read a question so what has changed in the last year and a half basically the science the research um, and it would benefit your baby to introduce it sooner um, just based on what the science says. And from my own experience, um, I've talked with a lot of moms about this and it's usually fine. I've never had a situation where, um, you know, there's an issue with introducing it bef before the 12 month period. Um, and I would definitely go ahead and try to introduce as, as many allergens as possible. Um, from six to 12 months and it doesn't have to be every day, but it can be like kind of regularly. Um, and if you don't eat a specific allergen, like wheat, like, um, for example, if you're, if you don't eat gluten, um, then you might not be able to introduce wheat or it would feel kind of out of the ordinary. So in that case, um, you don't have to, but it, it decreases the risk of an allergy if you do introduce them. Is that, I mean, does that go hand in hand with the whole concept of oral tolerance? Is that, is that what's going on there? Yeah. I mean, it's basically like you're exposing this brand new immune system to different foods and you are building up a tolerance to these foods that the body may respond to. And you're saying, this is not a problem. This food is okay. This, this food protein is not going to create an issue. Um, so that's, yeah, it's kind of like about educating the baby's immune system. Okay. Yeah. Um, you mentioned milk, so we do have a question specifically about milk. I'd love uh -huh. to hear Megan's thoughts surrounding the introduction of milk at one year. What kinds, how much, when to do it, if you're still nursing? And personally, I'm going to tag something onto that question. Is it even necessary to introduce milk? What are your thoughts there? 
I mean, no, you don't have to. Uh, there's plenty of people who don't do milk. There's lots of people that do. Um, I think milk can be a really convenient food because it's fat and it's protein. And it's really easy. It, it keeps people happy um, in terms of like hunger meltdowns or whatever, um, <laughs> like cheese and those kinds of foods. They're just super easy. Um, but you really don't have to. And if you do do milk, um, well, at six months or eight months or whenever you decide to introduce milk products, um, I always like to start with something that's been aged or fermented, like um, kefir or something of that nature, and raw if you can. I know some states don't do raw milk, but that's always better um, because it has a lot of enzymes in it and prebiotic and probiotics. Um, if you ferment it, it has the it has some of the probiotics or good bacteria that will help to um, support your baby's digestion. Um, but at one year, um, it's really what is in line with your home. Um, you know, you really want to do your best to eat how you want your baby to eat um, and eat to take care of your own health. And your baby will just naturally eat those foods as well. So I would you know, if you're, if you eat mainly plant foods or you're vegan or vegetarian, um, you would want to try to make your own milks and you would sprout your nuts and, um, soak them and then make your own nut milks. Or if you do coconut, you could like make your own coconut milk. Um, if you, you know, eat all kinds of dairy, you just do high quality dairy, grass fed, um, raw if possible. Uh, kefir is fabulous. It's wonderful because it has all those good bacteria in it. Um, and in terms of how much, um, it's it doesn't have to be like the core of the diet. I know some babies, um, I've worked with a lot of kids who are kind of like dependent on cow's milk or that's all they do, cow's milk and strawberries or something like that, you know, and it's not, that's not ideal because cow's milk or goat's milk, any kind of dairy will, um, block the absorption of, of, of iron and other key of zinc. And that can actually interfere with the, your baby's, um, later development. So, um, I would just be balanced in your approach. Um, and if you do have a picky eater, then you want to mix things up a bit and kind of play with how you introduce foods and give them foods and offer them foods. Um, because you really don't want them to get attached to, um, you know, a cow's milk bottle or something that's, that can make, make it kind of rough, nutritionally speaking. Um, all right. Since you, since you mentioned picky eaters, let's dive into that question. Um, okay. I get asked this often and I'm not really <laughs> ever sure how to answer it because for the most part, I don't really have a picky eater. Um, my daughter's three and a half now, so she's definitely voicing her opinions about what she wants and what mm -hmm. she doesn't want. But for the most part, she's a good eater. Um, I've heard it said before that it's easier to create an adventurous eater from the beginning versus go back and kind of course correct picky eating. Um, I think personally, three things that that I did or that we did in my house that were helpful and, you know, tell me if this, if this is backed up by anything, but, um, 
I didn't really change my diet throughout pregnancy and breastfeeding. And by that, I mean, I, I ate all of my normal foods, like spicy, lots of variety. I didn't shy away from, from any of it. Um, people definitely told me to avoid garlic and spices and all that jazz while I was breastfeeding, but I didn't. Um, <laughs> I did pull out all soy and dairy from my diet while I was nursing, but that was more of a digestive thing for, uh, for Hattie. So I think that obviously probably changes the taste of breast milk and sort of primed her palate for different flavors and tastes. Um, I also, in my house, there is no differentiation between adult food and kid food. Um, mm. She eats what we eat, and that's always been the case since day one. I mean, I remember like when she was a baby, she was eating like curries and stuff. It was, you know, it was just like food is food is food is food. That's, that's all you get. Um, and then finally, we also we don't buy or eat processed food. So she really hasn't been exposed to the, you know, the hyper palatable standard American fare, the, the hyper uh, palatability, <laughs> that's a tough one, of um, modern foodstuffs, I think can, can probably train taste buds. This is both true for kids and, and adults to kind of expect and anticipate overstimulation. Um, these foods are designed to make you want to eat more of them. So then simple flavors and textures by comparison, something like a roasted chicken or potatoes just aren't as exciting. So that's those are my thoughts, but I only have one child. So who knows? Maybe it was just a fluke. Um, do you have any ideas on creating a, a well-rounded, robust eater or how to get a picky eater to be more adventurous? Um, well, first of all, I love what you said. I think I totally agree with everything you said um and you know you're completely right about or at least in my mind I love the idea that food is food you know there's no differentiation between baby food and 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 adult food and that's just that's so right on with how I do things um and you know we think that a baby can't tolerate certain spices or that spices aren't okay for babies but the reality is is that really you only want to um, avoid like peppers and spicy spices <laughs> that, that can hurt your baby's mouth. But other than that, um, there's a lot of spices that can actually help your baby's um, gut and help to soothe gas and that type of thing like um, ginger and uh, fennel seed is really great. Um, so don't be afraid to incorporate spices into, or a curry mix even, um, into your baby's food. Um, it can be really fun for both you and your baby. Um, but yeah, um, with getting an adventurous eater, you really want to start during pregnancy. Um, your baby can taste your foods during pregnancy and your baby can taste your foods while breastfeeding. So those are really important times to expose your baby to a spectrum of flavors. Um, they found that babies who don't breastfeed, um, they're actually used to the taste of whatever they're drinking. Um, and usually it's like a, the same kind of sweet flavor um, that you would get like in uh, like a cow's milk um, formula. Like you would get like kind of a sweet bland flavor and it's over and over and over again it's every day so the baby actually gets used to that taste and it makes them pickier um, later on so ideally you can breastfeed but if not um, I would be sure to incorporate different spices when you do start solids um, that's really important to do and um, also do play around with plant foods because plant foods have that bitter taste which is kind of different from like sweet or salty 
And then the other thing that um, I would play around with would be tart foods and sour foods. And um, there's also a lot of evidence suggesting that, um, that there could be some link between picky eating and your gut microbes. So, and this is, this can be more extreme, like for kids who don't like not just the taste of something, but like the texture of something, they just kind of get like grossed out by certain foods. Um, sometimes it has to do with their gut. And so I would also, um, if you can start early on, um, with some kind of like probiotic food, like, um, coconut water kefir, like you can get these little shots at Whole Foods and they're really great. I gave my baby, um, a sip of one, I think at six months, like it's no big deal. And then my firstborn, um, he had kefir like all the time. So I think like getting that sour taste, number one with those kefir products, and then also diversifying the gut um, after your baby starts solids, it's really great for um, getting those good gut bacteria um, into the body. And there's a lot of research now too around like how your gut microbes control cravings and control food cravings, which is like fascinating. And this is in adults too. Like if you have a craving for chocolate, there are certain bacteria that favor chocolate. So they're going to kind of, and bacteria produce um, chemicals that talk to the brain. Like they make, um, they make, um, what's that? Like serotonin and um, they make GABA. Yeah, GABA, which is like, what? Like, so they can actually make you feel calm. They can make you feel happy and not only that but they can um, speak to your body in a sense and make you crave certain foods and you feel like satiated and happy after you have these foods because not only are you fed but they're fed so um there's definitely something at play there and i think there's a lot of unknowns and i definitely don't know enough about it to say for sure like this causes this but i would definitely consider um microbes and your, and your gut bacteria and getting your baby exposed to those probiotic foods, not just a probiotic, but a probiotic food as well can be really great. Um, awesome. So yeah. <laughs> um, this sort of, I'm assuming is going to tie into exactly what you're talking about right now. I, I want to bring up acid reflux in babies because mm -hmm. it seems like so many babies have acid reflux these days and it's very common practice to prescribe acid blocking drugs and, and PPIs, proton pump inhibitors to infants. What do you think is going on here? What's the downside of these drugs? What advice would you give to a mom whose pediatrician is saying her baby needs an acid blocking drug because he or she is spitting up? Are there safer alternatives? There are safer alternatives, and this is something that I worked with with my own my second baby. And I just want to like point out that like with my second baby, with both my babies, it was um, a natural birth in terms of like uh, through the birth canal. Um, so the baby was inoculated with all those like good vaginal microbes. But my baby and my baby was breastfed, so like things were like ideal in that situation, but yet my baby still had a really bad reflux and colic and it was so hard and so stressful and we were so sleep deprived. And, um, and I think the reason why we're seeing it more often and the reason why, you know, I did everything right and it still happened with, with me has to do with, um, the downstream effects of probiotic or of, uh, of antibiotic use. Um, and antibiotics are, 
hugely overused. Um, my husband works at a gym and this guy, he does like BJJ and stuff like that. And this guy had possibly a staph infection on his, um, on his leg. And then the guy that my husband works with was like, oh, just go take the, down some, some antibiotics and, and then after that you can go get a shot and you'll be fine. <laughs> and my husband was telling me, he was telling me this story and we were kind of laughing because the guy was just like, okay. But there's just like <laughs> this like huge misuse of both, I think, well, I think painkillers, number one, are hugely overused and misused and then um, also antibiotics. Everyone has antibiotics in their, you know, bathroom cabinet and they just pop them as they need them and actually I think next month is like antibiotic resistance awareness month. <laughs> okay, <laughs> like I didn't even the, know that was a thing. For but our geeks, I'm glad. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so basically there's this growing problem of, of antibiotic resistance. And the reason why I bring this up is, is just to say that like antibi antibiotics are so overly used. It's becoming a worldwide crisis just because all of the bacteria are adapting to these drugs, number one. And number two, they, they affect your bacteria. So when you have a baby, um, you're, you're passing on your microbes to your baby. And for me, I was on antibiotics several times before the age of 12. I actually, um, I got vaccinated like around two years old. Like I got all my vaccines and then like around two years old, I was vaccinated and then I got an ear infection like usual. And then I took antibiotics and then I stopped talking. And so there's this also connection between your 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 microbes your gut microbes and disorders like autism and developmental problems so we really need to like look closely at that number one and number two like all of that like dysmorphic or like i so i i took all these antibiotics as a baby which is like a key developmental period right that's my first 1000 days and then i had tons of acne like as a teenager and in my 20s so then i took tons of antibiotics for that and so i'm basically my body, I have a lot of health issues, which is why I eat the way I do, but I, I work really hard to give my kids like to pass on like good bacteria, but it doesn't always work. And that's because a probiotic only goes so far. It's only like, you know, maybe like 10 or 20 different strains of good bacteria, but in the gut, there's like thousands of strains and there's not, it's not just bacteria, it's yeast, bacteria, microbes, these things called archaea. So it's, it's this whole like ecosystem of different living things in the gut. Your gut is like, 80%, like 70 to 80% of your immune system. And not only that, but there's that huge connection to the brain. So it's really an important hub of a lot of um, information and activity. And when you mess with that, you kind of pass that on and on and on. So, you know, I'm not the only one who lived in the 80s and grew up with that kind of like overuse of antibiotics. So I'm assuming that colic and reflux is so common because you know a lot of the people that are having babies now are my age or younger and they were exposed to the same things that i was exposed to so that's just what's happening right now and the things that we can do to kind of counterbalance it in my opinion are is not um drugs for reflux so and and i've i have worked with actually quite a few moms with that issue um, with with one mom, um, I think her baby was five months, and her baby had been on reflux medication for a while, and it actually wasn't helping. And so I looked up the medication, and on the little product insert, I mean, you could just like read the stuff online. So, in the product insert, like basically the research that had been done on it 
was from 12 months onward. So there's a red flag because the baby was taking it way before 12 months. So its efficacy is only like possibly effective, like from 12 months on. And then you're only supposed to use it for a certain amount of time. And the doctors wanted to keep the baby on this medication for a long period of time. So um, we ended up um, using herbs and um, her baby went off the medication and was taking herbs to kind of like, um, kind of stoke those digestive fires. And the problem with medication is that it can actually interfere with the natural acidity of the stomach. So that's one big issue. And, um, and it doesn't actually solve the problem. And the problem is the microbes, right? It's like the gut bacteria are off balance. So you need to correct that and you'll help the colic, you'll help with the reflux. Um, so I actually have a blog post that talks a little bit about this and, um, or two blog posts, I think. No, I, I just have one. And it goes into like exactly what I would do, which would be um, like a prebiotic and then a probiotic. And um, usually that helps things and then probably your diet too is something that you would want to look at if you're breastfeeding. Okay. I'll make sure to grab that so I can link to it in the show notes and people yeah. can, can check that out. And you're, I mean, you're absolutely right. This is something that I talk about with adults quite frequently with, um, with acid reflux and being on drugs. And most of those drugs are really studied for like six weeks, you know? Yeah. And then they're exactly. put, people are being put on them indefinitely without any other, any other solutions. And exactly what you said, you are not even coming close to addressing the root cause. You're just masking a symptom, which is like our healthcare system at its finest. Um, and you know, you were just talking about the microbiome and how important it is. All of the things that live down there, they their genetic material accounts for 99% of, of the gen genetic material in our bodies, which is like so, so crazy to me that our, our own genes, our human genes make up 1% of like our or the genetic material in our meat bag. Like, it's just so nuts <laughs> to me. And so if we're not paying attention and we're not sort of honoring what's going on down there, we're kind of missing the mark, you know? Like, of course, of course, it's going to impact. It's going to impact all of these things. Um, so anyway, um, let's see where where we want to go next. You were, you know, why don't we talk a little bit about pri probiotics for babies? Um, okay. You know, do you feel that we should be giving babies probiotic supplements? Um, how, if so, how do you like to administer them? Um, do you have any recommended brands? I'm sure a lot of this stuff can be found on your website. So if there's certain links, I'll link to those. Um, and then you mentioned prebiotics. Uh, do you feel that babies and children, that's something that we should supplement with them? Or do you take more of a food first approach? Okay. Yeah, I mean, so for probiotics and prebiotics, that's actually, um, you know, if you're listening to this and your baby has like colic or reflux, um, I just wanted to mention real quick the brands that I use. Um, I would do, if your baby has reflux, I would do um, a prebiotic. It's called, um, it's called Galactoimmune, G-L-A-A-C, Galactoimmune. Um, and it's from Claire Labs, and um, that's in the blog post. And then also Gut Pro Infant, um, and that's by a company called Corganic. Um, and those are kind of my two like heavy hitters when it comes to dealing with that issue. And so then, you know, when it comes to probiotics for babies, and that question about should we give them probiotics from day one, um, I think the I have a very deep respect and kind of 
like reverence in a way for the gut ecosystem. Like I think it's really remarkable and special and whatever we do to tinker around with it, like it hasn't really been studied enough and we can't even begin to like touch like the kind of like complexity that's in there. So I think it's worth kind of honoring that and, and just allowing your baby's like ecosystem to do its own thing um, and gut bacteria to thrive as they will. Your breast milk is actually the number one prebiotic and probiotic you could ever give your baby. Um, some breast milk, if you have like a genetic, um, it's called a SNP or a polymorphism in the FUT2 gene, F-U-T2 gene, um, you'll actually... Um, uh, not be able to, to feed bifidobacteria very well. And the bifidobacteria microbe is the thing that's in baby's gut that really is the hallmark of like health and like a healthy, happy baby, good stools, no reflux or whatever. So that's really um, an important probiotic. Um, but yeah, if you have that genetic polymorphism, then you're not going to be able to produce uh, breast milk that's going to support those microbes. So, and if you, if you ever do like, um, there's a panel called 23andMe and I think they test for that. If you happen to know your genes, then, you know, you might be like, okay, I think I'm going to supplement my baby. But um, in general, if there are no problems, then I would not give your baby a probiotic as a newborn. I would just breastfeed if you can. If you can breastfeed, that is the best thing ever. Now, if you have a baby that has reflux or colic or any kind of digestive issues in terms of like um, stool with mucus or blood or something like that, then yeah, you would want to do a probiotic and a prebiotic. Usually that can help a lot. Um, so to give a probiotic to a newborn, um, you can, there's like little spoons that you can get um, and you can, it's like about a pinch. You would put a pinch into a bottle if you bottle feed or you can put it on your finger and just let your baby suck it off your finger. Um, it's pretty simple. And um, I would say that however you feed your baby, um, you would just wanna look for uh, signs that the baby needs a probiotic. Um, if your baby is fed formula, you would want to probably do a prebiotic and a probiotic. Um, just because that's what's naturally found in breast milk. So you want to mimic the breast milk as much as possible. Um, so that would be something that um, you would want to put in there. And that said, like not all prebiotics are equal. Um, there's some plant-based prebiotics. So a prebiotic, let's just, let me explain this. A prebiotic. <laughs> Back it up. <laughs> a prebiotic, prebiotic feeds the probiotic. So the probiotic is the good bacteria, the healthy microbes in the gut that, you know, do good things in the body. Um, and then the, the prebiotic feeds that microbe. So every microbe eats its own thing, like different, just like we like our own different foods, like, or animals, or there's different animals that eat their types of foods, like gorillas eat, I don't know, what do they eat, like plants and trees, and <laughs> a lion <laughs> eats, um, you know, deer or gazelle. Like, so there, there's different like species of things that like different things. So um, in the gut, it's the same thing. Um, you have a little ecosystem and different microbes eat different things. So when choosing a prebiotic, it's really important to choose one that is going to feed your good bacteria. And when it comes to babies, I think it's really important to stick with what would be natural. So for a newborn, you're not going to really, you can 
give your baby a plant-based prebiotic. But I think it's more valuable and useful to, 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 to offer your baby one that's more aligned to what the baby would get through breast milk. So um, the product that I mentioned before, the Claire Labs, um, the Claire Labs Galactoimmune, that prebiotic, which you can link to in your notes probably, right? That product, sure. it's, it's yep. amazing, it's great. Um, so that product has beta-glucans, which are found in the cell wall of yeast. So the body is full of yeast. So um, that's a natural thing that's native to the body, right? And then the other uh, prebiotic that's in it comes from milk. So these are two things that are very natural to the human body and that your baby would be exposed to anyways. Um, most other probiotics, like the one from Claire Labs, the infant one, um, they have inulin, which comes from a plant. So there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, it's completely fine, but for babies who have digestive issues, I really think it's important to go that extra step and just, you know, give your baby as much of the, that makes as much sense to the body as possible. That makes sense. <laughs> that makes a ton of okay. sense. And it's, um, super helpful. Thank you. I, um, uh, one of the, I don't know what book it was from, but I, I did read a book and the, like my biggest takeaway from it was that um, when looking at human breast milk, there was an oligosaccharide, uh, uh, which is just, you know, a type of carbohydrate that is completely indigestible to human beings found in breast milk. So, you know, on first first thought, that doesn't really make a ton of sense. Why would something be in breast milk that a baby can't digest? But that that carbohydrate specifically feeds a certain strain of bacteria that's very um, beneficial to babies. So it's just like so incredible. It's like the type of thing that gives me goosebumps upon learning it. I'm like, we're miracles. Like yeah, mother sure. nature <laughs> nailed it. Nailed yeah. it. If we could just kind of like step away, like hands off and let mother nature do her thing, we'd probably be in a lot, a lot better place. Um, all right. So the next question was submit, submitted by um, me because this is definitely like more self-indulgent. Um, I want to ask you a question and it's not because I think that you're going to have all the answers here. So there's really no pressure, but more so asking mom to mom, I'd really like to hear your thoughts about this. Um, and I'm going to build up to it a little bit because there's some things that I want to unpack in order to set the stage for my question. I think it's probably safe to say that both you and I eat a little differently than the average American. Um, if the average American is is eating the standard American diet, that's not really how we, we feed our children. We uh, feed them a little differently than that. And I'm saying this not because I know you personally, but because I watch what you do on Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> so um, in my household, we eat a pretty ancestral diet. And, and all I mean by that is I try to follow a diet and a lifestyle that my genes have come to expect. So for diet, that means a lot of whole foods, very few packaged items, very minimal processing, really for the most part, nothing that didn't exist a hundred years ago. Um, I do believe that humans are very adaptable creatures, uh, but our current environment places demands on us that our genes really aren't able to keep up with. And this is partly what is setting the stage for chronic disease, which has unfortunately become the new norm um, in this country. And it's just this whole idea of evolutionary mismatch, which I, I know you're familiar with, but perhaps um, the people listening are not. But I'd say in the real food community, this idea is pretty widely accepted, but I'm not really sure it's where most of society is in terms of groupthink. I remember teaching a nutrition workshop when I was 
really pregnant. Um, I made a comment about how I would probably care a little bit more about my nutrition once I had a baby. And there was a couple of moms in the front row and they were, they were chuckling and they were like, no, you're not going to even have the time to care anymore. Trust us. You'll actually loosen your, loosen the reins quite a bit. And based on what I've seen, that really does seem to be more of the accepted philosophy amongst moms. Um, I think as women and moms, we can get so freaking burnt out. We're expected to do all the things, wear all the hats, be everything to everybody. So sometimes food can sort of take a back seat on our importance list. We just lean on convenience foods that are easy for us, easy for our families. Just we're like all just trying to get by, right? Um mm-hmm. and so I don't really want to get into a conversation about social demands put on on moms but or women or people in general, but I mean, that's probably a good conversation to have. But um, anyway, my point is like to, to do the opposite of this, to say, you know, despite all odds, I'm going to feed my child whole real food. That can feel like a challenge to the status quo. And now I'm talking more personally here. It doesn't feel like a challenge in my own house per se, but definitely more so when I'm out interacting with the world. I kind of live by the principle, be the change you wish to see in the world, right? Mm -hmm. If I see a broken system like the food system or the healthcare system, for example, I want to be an active participant in challenging that and changing that system instead of just complaining about it. Um, It's kind of like, if not now, when, if not me, who, right? So personally... I try to do that through education, by having a career as a nutritionist, but also by making choices for my family that reflect my ethos. Um, And I I found this to be a lot easier when my daughter was younger. I'm going to be totally honest. Um, Now that Hattie is getting older, she's three and a half. She goes to preschool a couple afternoons a week. She spends lots of time with different family members. So she's getting out there and and mixing it up, right? In the, the big wide world, she's interacting with the world and it's getting tougher. And it's not because she won't eat real food or I don't have the time to prepare it or anything like that. It's more avoiding the packaged and processed stuff that I consider non-food. It takes a lot of effort. It takes a lot of communication, a lot of explaining uh, to other people for sure, but also to her. Like, why does she have to eat differently than, you know, her kiddos at school? I'm personally okay with being a societal outlier. I'm at this stage in the game, I'm okay with it. I'm okay with people making comments about the way I eat. I'm okay with opting out of the food industry's shenanigans. I'm okay with being different. But I also sort of feel like I've just hoisted that responsibility onto her. So now she's the kid in preschool who brings in like the special gluten-free muffins. And I have to wonder what kind of effect that's going to have on her long term. And I might, I admit, I might get a little too heady about this stuff because I did have such a strained relationship with food for so long that that's really the last thing that I want to pass on to her. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think it can be a tricky thing to navigate. So I don't even, (laughs) I just said like a lot of words, um, like dear diary, (laughs) but I, I guess I'm just curious to hear another mom's opinion, somebody that's doing something similar in this whole wellness sphere, like what are your thoughts around feeding your children outside of the social norm? Or maybe it's not even an issue for you because you live in LA and everyone eats like Gwyneth anyway. I don't know. No, No, I mean, it's definitely an issue. Um, You know, 
I've been talking to my son about his gut and his digestion from like, so young, like my oldest. So my oldest son is five years old. And when he was, I don't know, probably like three or two, I, like, I remember telling him, okay, you eat the food, it goes in your food, it goes to your tummy and it goes in, like out the, like the poopy. <laughs> and, um, and so, and as time goes on, it gets more and more complex. Like, so it goes through your tummy and then into your intestines. And so like he, he understands food. He understands Sometimes, like, he had a major gut issue. Um, I, I, don't, I don't know if he got sick or what happened, but he had bloody stools, like, very badly at around three years old. Um, and he had a viral infection sometime before that. So I think that might have been linked. But um, he, he understands, like, food, digestion. He understands it equals, you know, the bathroom, like, what comes out, if it's hard, if it's soft. Like, he's always telling me about... You know, my poopy was soft and fluffy or it was like hard mommy. <laughs> I don't know. Like he like today in the bathroom, he was like telling me about it and he told me it was both things. It was really confusing. But I was like, <laughs> oh, well, if it's hard and it feels dry, it's like probably constipation. So we talk a lot about that stuff. And we've been talking about that since he was very, very young. And we also talk about how food makes him feel. And so my husband took him to a party. When was it? it was this past summer. And the mom gave him, like, there was cupcakes and cake. And the mom was like, did you want any? And he's like, no, he didn't want, like, any shit. And then the mom, like, they got these little bags, like, with cars and some Play-Doh and um, some candy in there. And he took all the candy out and he gave it back. And my husband oh told my me gosh. this. I know. And I was, I have not at all tried to, like, brainwash him or say, like, candy is bad or nothing like that. All I've done is... I eat a very specific way and um, I, I think that's where it starts. So, you know, your own relationship with food is really important. Um, if you have any like food addictions or whatever, like I totally get that and I feel you and I've been there. Um, but like kind of dealing with your relationship with food, I think is a really important thing when passing on that relationship to your kids. Um, and I think like the why like explaining why things are the way they are like why does the food i eat you know affect me does it affect me i mean just the understand it took me until like mid 20s to understand the fact that the food that i eat actually impacts how i feel I, I mean that's it's like a it's it's a radical idea for some people like some people just eat you know and they don't really think i mean a lot of people do i used to do that you just eat food and then you feel like you're like constipated, you're bloated, your joints hurt. I used to have a really bad joint pain. Um, I like acne, all these things. Like, why is my skin breaking out? Always, like, it's my period, it's my hormones. And actually, it was the food that I was eating. So it's really important to also like kind of get that relation, that 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 connection, like cemented in your own understanding, and then explain that to your kids because your kids will just like soak that up. I think. Um, and I, that's probably really weird. I mean, I think like, I'm not sure that a lot of moms do that. And I know it can seem overwhelming to always like prepare like real food for your child and your family. Um, you know, I've lately been doing a lot of meal prepping. So I basically like make a bunch of things early or I'll pre-cut a bunch of stuff. So when it comes time to cook, I'm not like in the kitchen for an hour. I'm just like 
tossing things in a pan it's already cut up and it just makes life so much easier so if you can like have a day where you just spend it like prepping a bunch of food that actually can help out a lot with the stress of like trying to keep up that lifestyle I guess but um um yeah <laughs> in terms of like you know I guess that relationship with food and passing on um, a good relationship with food. I think it's just making sure you have a good relationship with food and, and explaining to your kids what this means and then letting go. Like you have to like, just be a little bit like relaxed when it comes to parties or, um, you know, I expected my, if my son didn't, or if he did eat those things, I wouldn't have been surprised. I was shocked that he actually didn't eat them. Um, but you know, if he did eat them, no big deal. You know, we take some extra probiotics if he's having issues. If he's not having issues, great. Um, it's not a big deal. I think if you're fanatical about it or you're like super strict, you're going to create um, a sugar monster later on or you're going to like have yeah. a child that's going to rebel. At some point, there will be a rebellion. So if you just let go in yourself, like not just like how you act with your kid, but like in yourself, you're just like, this is like how we like do things and this is why and this is why it matters and just let it be because you need to be at peace with that because your kid's going to rebel against you anyways. <laughs> yeah. I love all of that. The one we didn't really learn Truth be told, I studied uh, nutrition dietetics in college, mm -hmm. and uh, it's conventional nutrition. And uh, we didn't really learn too much about about uh, child childhood nutrition, or definitely nothing about baby nutrition. Nothing. But one takeaway I did get was the uh, teacher saying, "You just want to take the energy out of the situation," and it, that has stuck with me all of these years. And I can see it play out now that I'm a mom. It's like the more you sort of like grind on something, the more like, you know, she's going to pick up on that. She's going to, mm -hmm. she's going to, she's going to take that on. And that's one thing that I've been able to do at the very least is just be like, it is what it is, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like, um, but I like all, I really like drawing that connection between, Hey, like how you eat influences how you feel and just making, bringing more awareness to that. I think that's really, really helpful. And absolutely batch cooking is a life saver for moms. Um, so we are rounding out on an hour. Do you have time for one more quick question? Yeah, definitely. So this one, I wanted to sneak this one in because this was a listener question and we're embarking on the holidays. I mean, Thanksgiving is two days away. So this one says, my kids seem to go off the rails during the holidays. Lots of high sugar foods and treats at parties. Kind of just exactly what we were just talking about. Yeah, totally. What's the best way to get kids back on track after the holidays? I anticipate you're going to say something about fermented foods, but I'm I'm curious to hear what your thoughts are. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think um, fermented, if you can, like in terms of like, all the sugary things. I mean, just making it like fun sugar, that would always be great. And, um, but parties and things like that. I don't, I mean, I think it comes down to just that inner like regulation again. Um, we don't, I don't know. I mean, we don't really, let's see. <laughs> Probiotics would be probably the thing I would do most. Um, and just watching for what's happening. And if there is a problem, just like, I think the most important thing is to call it to my kids' attention. You know, it's not so like, it's like when you do something over and over and over again, it's because you don't understand why it's not good for you. 
you know, like you're, if you're, if you have a bad relationship with like the type of food, like say, okay, if this is like very personal chocolate, like sometimes I would, I go into these things and I don't eat a lot of like quote unquote, like bad foods, junk food, whatever. I, I really don't because it's not just, I used to a lot, but it's just not a part of my lifestyle anymore, but I still, um, up until recently, I still would eat chocolate all of the time. And it was like this fair trade, organic, dark chocolate, whatever, but it still has like so much sugar that my body can feel it. So I eat chocolate. I feel, I feel it in my body, but I keep doing it again and again and again. So it's really like, I didn't understand it until I got like sick enough where, <laughs> um, and it's, it comes back to that tooth infection that I told you about before the, the show started. Um, that I was like, okay, this is like really affecting me. And there was other things happening as well in my health that I knew that just cutting out sugar in a big way would be really important. Um, but I use, you know, sugar, I don't drink coffee and I just use like chocolate for energy, but I really don't need it. And so not giving myself something and seeing that I'm okay without it. And so I see that it's like a dependence thing. It's an addiction thing. Like I'm kind of, you know, relying on something that I don't really need to rely on. And not only that, but like seeing the connection that it has to my body and how it's affecting my body, I think is huge for actually having, not having this like relationship with food, this bad relationship with food. And so when people overeat and they like kind of go off the deep end or whatever, I feel like it's because they have this unregulated like relationship with food. Um, I mean, I don't know. Do you agree with that? I would. I would. I definitely, I, I, I would agree with that. Yeah. I mean, there's a difference between like, you know, you eat like a brownie and it's delicious and you're like, oh my God, that was amazing. And then like, that's the end of the meal. There's a difference between that and eating like a whole case of cookies or something. Like the, at a certain point, you're like, like you can taste something and love it and it's a treat, or you can like eat like a whole crap load of something and, and you've like totally overeaten and you just kind of lost touch with reality in a way, you know? And I think that's a really, um, that's something that like I have struggled with. And, um, and I think it's, uh, this disconnect that happens for a lot of people. I know I'm not alone in that. And, and I would say that like, I know this is kind of a serious response to your question, but I do think like the most important thing you can do besides probiotics, um, it's just for kids, um, in my experience is just calling the kids attention to like, oh, you feel, you know, oh, you have a tummy ache or you're like really, um, you had bad dreams. Is that because you ate late last night, like too late? Um, I know my son, he would sometimes eat really late and he would want to eat something like really late. And, um, there's this connection that possibly in Chinese medicine that like eating late at night can cause bad dreams. So, I mean, I don't know if that's for sure. It's not in like the research, but like, I, I do try to like, you know, pass on these things that I know. And so I just try to connect how he feels to his body. And if he honors that relationship, that's like the number one thing. So, um, I don't know. I, that's not no, really that, a great answer. No, but... that's an amazing answer because I don't okay. think I don't think as adults we do that enough. So then, if we cannot do it ourselves as parents, how can we then pass that on to our children? Just yes. that simple connection of of self, you know, and our, ourselves to our bodies. That and is... that's the root, right? Like that's the root of it. So then you don't even have the problem of like eating too much because you're like, oh, this is yummy awesome and then you move on you move yeah. on right and i think you hit the nail on the head when you said you said you've lost touch with reality because i think and this is more of an adult thing but i think as 
we can use food as a way to check out of our reality when things become mm-hmm. too much. Um, I certainly did that for a very long time. And that actually started when I was a child. So maybe oh, it doesn't just apply apply to adults. But um, yeah. anyway, that's that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. So before we close out the show, can you tell us, I mentioned your First Foods and Beyond program, which I really hope uh, parents will check out. But you also do custom baby meal plans, which I think would be a great resource for some of our listeners. Can you explain the difference between the two and um, and j- just tell us a little bit more about th- about that offering? So basically, the custom meal plans are for any parent that just feels really overwhelmed by um, what they're doing or what their baby needs, and they just want a little extra help. I mean, this one parent that I worked with. Um, her son was allergic to coconut, but he ate like a mostly paleo diet. <laughs> so, like, oh, jeez. Yeah. <laughs> and like coconut's like, you know, the core of like milk products and flour products and whatever. So she was just like really overwhelmed. Um, but her son could do rice, but rice has arsenic in it, you know, or it's, it's a high arsenic food. So you really don't want to give that to kids. Um, so, you know, it was a, a lot to work around. So if you have like a lot going on and you just kind of want to throw your hands up in the air and say, here's a bag, a box of Cheerios or something, um, then, you know, that might be something that you're interested in just for the extra support. So it's just like a lot of um, support in terms of of me talking to you and then the meal plan itself. um, I just customize it to fit your baby's needs. That sounds awesome. Um, All right. So I'll make sure to link to all of your goodies in the show notes. But before before uh, we say goodbye, is there anything else you want to call our attention to? Any any other places to find you? Anything that's going on? Yeah, I mean, um, Instagram is, um, I feel like I've like been slacking a lot with just communicating with people. Um, I've, I'm so busy with other work projects. Um, but I, I do have some exciting things in the works for myself. Um, but that's not until like next year, like maybe springtime or summer. Um, but in the meantime, Instagram and Facebook are pretty good. I'm not as um, active on Facebook. Um, but my personal site is like in, it's like, one with like me like I have a personal like I have a business page on Facebook but I never use it because it confuses me I don't understand why I have a personal site and then also my business I guess if I'm (laughs) if I'm like huge and I have I can't I can only have a certain amount of friends right like on my personal Facebook is that correct you're asking the wrong person okay no idea what I'm doing doing. yeah so I, I have a formal business page but really, um, all of the activity happens on my personal page. I have like tons of mom friends who I only know through Facebook and it's really fun. And sometimes we talk about different things and that's great. And then, and I share like studies and stuff sometimes on Facebook and then on Instagram, it's more like pictures of my kids and, um, food that I make and things like that. So, um, yeah, if you want to find me there, um, it's, it's exciting to talk to new people. Yeah. And you provide a lot of, um, very hands on like easy to follow suggestions. It's not just like, oh, I read this study, which is phenomenal. You do share that on <laughs> Facebook. Everything you post, I'm like, need to read it. Um, but the Instagram is more like, here's what we're doing in our house. And I love that because it's extremely helpful for people. So that is all awesome. Thank you so much for being on the show. You um, you brought a, our attention to a lot of very important topics. So I really, really appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule to to come on to the show. Yeah, thank you. It's so much fun. And it's nice to talk to you in real life. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. I know. <laughs>
Thanks for joining me for this episode of the Functional Nutrition Podcast. If you'd like to submit a question to the show, fill out the contact form at erinholthealth.com. If you got something from today's show, don't forget, subscribe, leave a review, share with a friend, and keep coming back for more. Take care of you. All right. Well, thanks so much. Okay.